Sometimes the natural world is gross, sexy, horrifying, violent, and all those other words you look for in late night TV. This show is intended for mature audiences. Hey, I'm Alec, and I'm a paleobiologist. I'm Lay, I'm a zoo educator. And I'm Emily, a marine biologist. And welcome to Zoo After Dark. So what kind of animals are we talking about this time? Abyssal fish. Yeah, all those weirdos that live down at the bottom of the ocean, but not quite the deepest part, not on the ocean floor. So to give you guys a frame of reference for where the abyssal zone is located, the ocean is kind of separated into five major zones. First one is the epipelagic. That's going to be that topmost layer. The mesopelagic is what you would think about when you're thinking about the open ocean, where a lot of those different animals are going to live. Then there's the bathopelagic, and then the abyssopelagic, and finally the hadopelagic or the benthic zone. Benthic is just a kind of a catch-all word to describe the bottom ocean floor layer. So you can have a benthic zone as deep as the Marianas Trench, but then also just technically the benthic is the bottom of the beach where the sand is at the bottom. And if anyone needs an easy way to remember all of those, you can watch Finding Nemo and listen very, very closely to Mr. Ray's song. Mm -hmm. That's how I studied for my marine biology midterm. Yeah, it's a good way to get all those words straightened in your head because basically they all have pelagic, which is basically just referring to the ocean itself. And then all of those prefixes are referring to the different layers. Uh, And he does make a catchy tune to help you remember them. We are going to be focusing on fish that, again, live in the abyssopelagic or the abyssal zone, which is about 4,000 meters to 6,000 meters down. Or for those of you that use feet, about 13,000 feet to 20,000 feet. So way, way deep down there. So I have no concept of how deep that is. Would people dive down there? Would submersibles go that far down into the abyssal zone? Or is that accessible only by ROVs? Yeah, so people, uh, whether they're free diving or scuba diving, are probably never going to see the abyssal zone in person, just kind of freely swimming out there, unless they develop some sort of spacesuit-esque diving suit for us to take, mainly because the pressure is just way too much. Typically, if you go scuba diving, deepest is about 130 feet. And that is just on the standard tank of oxygen or air that you get, which technically is composed of the normal air that we breathe, which is mostly nitrogen. You can, however, get certified to breathe purely oxygen. It's called nitrox certification. And that allows you to dive a bit longer and perhaps go a bit deeper, but still nowhere near the abyssal zone. Uh, But on the other hand, you can go down there in a submarine. There have been many expeditions to go down to the abyssal zone within a submarine. And then, of course, ROVs have been down as deep as the hadopelagic zone or that benthic bottom, uh, even in some of those really deep trenches too. So definitely can go see it, but probably not swim within it at this point. Probably not a tourist spot. No, (laughs) not so much. Not yet. It's amazing that we've been able to send people down there though. That is so far down and sounds so cold. It seems like it's outer space underwater to me. It is very much so. So yeah, it is very cold. Average temperatures where the two zones meet, the bathopelagic and the abyssal pelagic, is only going to be about 
zero degrees Celsius to four degrees Celsius, or again for Fahrenheit, 32 degrees Fahrenheit to 39 degrees Fahrenheit. So very, very chilly. And it's also kind of eerie, like how spaces, there's no wind in space. There's no real changes in light in space all the time. Same thing for the abyssal zone. There's no seasonal changes of light or temperature. It's always very dark, very steady. There's not a lot of plant matter to help discern where the currents are. So like there are currents, but it's just harder to perceive. And then of course, all that immense pressure, it can be between 200 to 600 atmospheres down there. So all those animals are under a lot of pressure. Common animals that you'll find down there, things like different bony fish, like the anglerfish, of course, the blobfish that everyone on the internet knows and loves. Although interestingly about that is when it is present in the abyssal zone, if you find it in the ocean, it does not look like that blobby gelatinous pile that all of the pictures online show it as. It does look like a normal fish with fins, a long body, uh, still kind of an ugly frowny face shaped face. But the reason why it looks like a pile of goo up at the surface is because it's no longer under all of that pressure. So you can imagine if a person went down that deep after living on land, we would be crushed, crumpled like a piece of tin foil. But you bring any of those creatures up to the surface, they kind of explode because they no longer have all oh, the no. weight of the ocean compressing their body. So I never thought about that. Yeah. One additional thing I learned about the abyssal zone that I thought was really cool is that it is technically the largest environment on Earth. So it takes up the about 60% of the global surface of the entire Earth. And in terms of just the ocean, it takes up about 83% of the entire ocean. So it's that whole band between 4,000 to 6,000 meters uh, wherever you're going. So it is technically the largest environment. And we know next to nothing about it. Yeah, that's what's so wild to me. Like We think of it as this totally unknown spot on the planet, but in reality, we seem to know so little about the planet if that's giant. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, especially because we're able to do so much up in space with different spacecraft ROVs up there, but we really can't do the same things in the ocean yet, probably because pressure and different parameters are different, I would imagine. But yeah, we really don't know a lot. And every day we're getting new footage of animals that live in this area and new species are being discovered, new behaviors are being observed. So it's really, really cool for sure. So let's talk a little bit about the animals that we do know something about. Alec, what monstrous horror did you find? That's a little harsh. No, I I mean, it's judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) It is a little accurate considering how we find these you're talking about how we know so little and have explored so little of this giant environment. But one of the ways that we do find some animals that live there is when they come to the surface. <laughs> so as you know, when fish pass away, normally they float. This fish called the black swallower actually kills itself by eating when it's trying to sustain its own life. There's a no-win situation here for this fish. 
this fish is able to swallow prey that's over twice its own length because it has a giant distendable stomach. So when you see this fish swimming around, I mean, it looks like it's almost carrying around like a body bag attached to its stomach because it's also kind of see-through through that stomach. But the problem with that is that because it can swallow stuff that's so much larger than it, decomposition does have to happen at some point. So while it's digesting the prey, sometimes it starts decomposing faster than it can digest, which then builds up gases, which then causes this fish to float out of its zone all the way up to the very top of the ocean um, and die from trying to swallow. It's like the worst day at Taco Bell. Like it gets terrible gas from this giant food that's larger than itself. It would be like if I went to Taco Bell, got a giant burrito, stuffed it in my mouth, and it started decomposing faster than my body could swallow it. And I got such bad gas that it caused me to float out into outer space. And that's how aliens found my body. <laughs> wow. It also has a giant mouth with interlocking teeth. So it can really commit to its bad choices. Right. Yeah. So it's not even like it can take a bite or like spit it out. It's just once it's there, it's there. It's there. It's kind of like a fish met with a snake that can make just really terrible choices. I was going to say, this reminds me of snakes because that can happen too. With snakes, their teeth hook into their prey to hold them in their mouths. So it's really hard for them to let go. And sometimes snakes do eat something that's a little too big for them to digest quickly. And the same thing happens where the prey will decompose in their body. The gases build up and then the snakes burst. So that's often how we hear about snakes that have eaten large prey items like alligators or deer because it didn't end well for either animal involved. But yeah, then floating up, that's just... <laughs> well, and you imagine now the fish is expanding enough to where it will actually float up in the water column because water, of course, is a lot more dense than air. So it would take more of that gas buildup to propel an animal upwards through water than it would in air that combined with the internal pressure of the animal constantly pushing outwards that then increases as the pressure around it decreases that's just a recipe for disaster so much worse than the blobfish yeah it's both helpful but also kind of disastrous for researchers is like hey great we can learn more about this animal that through research of that environment realized you know where it came from and all this but imagine collecting that thing fish already don't smell great when they're decomposing it has another fish inside of it that the decomposing gases is causing this thing to float that has got to be the worst smell and like you're saying about like you know snakes expanding exploding from it I could imagine that absolutely happening, that if you didn't get this on ice quickly enough after collecting it, you have now got exploded smelly specimen on your boat. (laughs) I haven't heard of that happening yet, but I could absolutely see it happening. Just a time clock as soon as you get it up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And do we know how big this fish is normally? They're not super big. The maximum recorded length has been about nine and a half inches. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I was picturing like a decent sized fish, but this is just a little guy. Well, they're a little guy when their stomach is empty. (laughs) If they can swallow prey about twice its own length, (laughs) that gets a lot bigger. Wow. So it's like an accordion fish. It really is. It almost looks like a tumorous growth if you didn't know what this was. 
I suppose more often than not, it ends up working out. Otherwise, perhaps it wouldn't have this adaptation. And it makes sense because if this area of the ocean is the largest um, and there are still quite a few animals that call this zone home, but it's very rare for you to run into other animals when you're down there, which is also kind of ominous to think about. So it makes sense if you can come across something, you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, that's too big for me to eat. I can't eat it. You just got to go for it, I guess. And you have to have adaptations that help you to be a really good hunter too. So you need fast working jaws with adaptations to help you grab the prey before it can get away. Absolutely. And the more food you can grab at once, the less food you have to grab on a bad day. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, these guys are actually the least concerned on Red List. So something's working out for them, even though they do float out into the fish's equivalent of space (laughs) uh, from eating lunch because it has decomposing farts in its stomach. Like, (laughs) I wonder how good that data is, though. How well have scientists surveyed these fish to know their population? Yeah, I imagine that's interesting, especially because there are still species that we're discovering down there. So there can be many that are cataloged as being the same species. And that's a good point that they realized later, oh, wait, this is actually a different species or a subspecies, you know. That happens Um, all the time, even with terrestrial animals. There's currently discussion about how to reclassify giraffes. Yeah. And if we should, how many species of giraffe are there? One, Mm -hmm. four, more? Who knows? Yeah. All right. We just need to go in with a big net and (laughs) scoop all the fish and then put them into little deli cups so we can categorize them. But then just that easy. Well, no, they'll expand out like the blobfish and die. Well, we'll just set up a sea base alpha. What if we create an underwater sea base in the abyssal zone and we have little. ROVs that go out and collect things and have it dock in this station. Okay. We just need like the International Space Station, but underwater. All right. So speaking of another relatively small but mighty predator that you'll find down in the abyssal zone is probably my favorite shark species ever. It is the cookie cutter shark. That sounds adorable. You would think. (laughs) Do they not make cookies? Out of flesh. (gasps) Even cuter. They make flesh cookies, as you do. The cookie cutter shark, also called the cigar shark, is relatively small. It's only about 20 inches long when it's fully grown, has a very blunt nose, and typical coloration is going to be various shades of brown with a darker band kind of around its neck. There was very little known about the cookie cutter shark for a long time. And the way that we eventually found out about it was we discovered different carcasses of whales and fish that would float to the surface after passing away or wash up on the beach. And they had these perfectly round bite marks on their bodies, like almost as if a person took a circle to it and kind of carved out that outer bit of flesh. And scientists and researchers were very confused because they were like, 
it's too perfect of a circle and it's like relatively same thickness for the circle that was actually carved out of these bodies. And it didn't seem to be damaging enough though, to have caused the death of the whale or fish or whatever it was. And in fact, sometimes they would actually catch larger fish that were alive and had these scars or they would witness whales that had the scars as well, those circular scars. Do we know if they got infection from these wounds? Um, That's a good question. I don't know that that was still necessarily the cause of death for them. It appears as though the bite from this cookie cutter shark was more of a a light parasitic nature, if you will. Like it was enough for the cookie cutter shark to kind of latch on, take this bite and swim away and didn't really hinder larger animal because a lot of times it would be very, very large. So not necessarily enough to be taken down by what would essentially amount to like a paper cut. It's a pretty big paper cut. Indeed. Yeah. (laughs) But basically the way that this cookie cutter shark is able to do these bites is it can actually kind of flatten its jaw almost 180 degrees. And then it does like a twisting motion to carve out those perfect circles of flesh, much like you would with a cookie cutter, taking that cookie cutter ring, putting it in dough, moving it back and forth, and then removing it. They make sushi cookie cuts, essentially. They do. They do. Yeah. I guess it's kind of adorable. It's very adorable. Yeah, but I guess (laughs) probably really monstrous though. And there have been some fish pulled up that have several of these holes in them too. And it just looks like perfect discs of the outer skin blubber. Certainly not adorable or pleasant for the fish that are being preyed upon. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Also, interestingly enough, they will swallow their teeth that happen to fall out during this process or just over time. Sharks continuously grow teeth. They have multiple rows all the time. But in order to gain additional nutrients, they will actually eat their teeth that have fallen out. Makes sense because there's not a lot of free-floating nutrients that you'll find down in the abyssal zone. So you kind of take what you can get. So once they're done being teeth, they're little vitamins. That's really convenient. Kind of like how geckos will eat their shed skin. Yeah, exactly. I cannot imagine eating shark teeth. Like Out of all the teeth out there, that sounds like some of the hardest to swallow safely. Sure, yeah. But they are really small, though, comparatively. Get it? Point? (gasps) Yes. Oh, boy. Come on, where are your pies? 10 out of 10. I'm sorry. (laughs) I, it's too vague of a subject for puns, the abyssal zone, or it would all just have abyss in the punchline. I'm just hearing excuses. Anyways, so yeah, in addition to their weird mouths, they also have a bioluminescent stomach. So the whole underside of the cookie cutter shark actually glows green thanks to a variety of special cells called photophores that are on the ventral or stomach side. They extend all across the bottom of the shark, but stop once they get to that darker colored band. It's just thought that the cells that make up that band do not contain the photophores, which is why they don't glow. So yeah, they have a glowing tummy. Do they know if it serves any function? So yeah, there are a couple ideas. The first is that it is meant to lure in their prey items. So they're able to take a bite out of them. The abyssal zone is of course very, very dark. 
not too much light happening. Lots of animals down there have different bioluminescence, either to recognize members of the same species or to kind of lure things that they want to eat in. So it's thought that green stomach will kind of hypnotize, lure different fish in for them to take bites out of. And it also serves to eliminate their shadow while they're swimming around in the darkness through a adaptation called counter illumination which is very similar to counter shading except instead of having lighter colored skin it is actually light itself that is creating that counter shading effect that's really clever Mm -hmm. it is yeah and for those of you that aren't quite sure counter shading is an adaptation that an animal has to help it camouflage a lot of ocean animals have this most shark species and lots of fish too basically refers to the two colors that you will see on an animal so typically they are a darker color on top so if you're swimming up above the animal and you look down it'll kind of blend in with the ocean floor and that darker color but if you're swimming underneath that same animal and you look up they have a lighter or sometimes white coloration on their underside. So then it blends in with the lighter color of the ocean sky and the sun. So they're able to camouflage vertically in the ocean. These cookie cutter charts are amazing. Yeah. And then my favorite fact is a homage to my interest in history because I love history just as much as I love science. The scientific name for the cookie cutter shark is Isistius brasiliensis. So it was kind of named after the Egyptian god Isis, which occasionally can have references to light, but not always. That's She is not necessarily the goddess of light, but it can be incorporated when you think about purity and stuff like that. So. Yeah, for a lot of Egyptian gods and goddesses, they have different attributes that they're not necessarily a god of X, Y, or Z, but different things associated with them. So now it is a holy glowing shark that can take cookies of flesh out of you. There have been some people who have been bitten by the cookie cutter shark. They can travel up higher out of the abyssal zone occasionally, not for long amounts of times, but it's very uncommon to be bitten by the cookie cutter shark. But uh, I have seen some images with those good old cookie cutter bites on people's calves. Definitely very grotesque looking. Do research at your own discretion, I guess. Warning graphic. But yeah, they've also even witnessed these bites in whale carcasses that float to the bottom to decompose pose. They'll see those big bites. And sometimes the cookie cutters might venture down and actually take bites out of the already decaying animal rather than going after a live prey too. So they're not very picky. Not necessarily. But again, I feel like when you live in a place where food is not guaranteed, you know, you gotta make exceptions. They're very resourceful. I'll give them that. Well, thanks for giving me even more reasons to be afraid of swimming in the open ocean. Yeah, but just don't go down too deep. It's fine. Just avoid 60% of our planet's habitats. Yep. Okay. No problem. Or 83% of the whole ocean. I mean, that sounds like a good plan anyway. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, lots and lots of fish in the abyssopelagic do glow. They have some kind of bioluminescence. And one very notable group of fish is the anglerfish that lots of people have probably heard of. That is the big scary fish that comes through in Finding Nemo to eat them with the little glowing light that lured in Dory. And that is how a lot of anglerfish hunt and lure their prey closer. 
there are over 200 species of anglerfish, and a lot of them have a modified fin ray on the top of their heads that has bioluminescence at the end of it. And that bioluminescence is created by a bacteria that creates the light. So the light lures in their prey, and they have giant teeth and jaws to eat them. They look terrifying, many of these species. Very well-known species is the humpback anglerfish. It's a deep-sea anglerfish that is usually at least 6,000 feet down, so they can be found a little higher up, but um, many species in the abyssal zone itself. So although anglerfish can get a little bigger than three feet, a lot of species are smaller. And the humpback anglerfish or the deep-sea anglerfish is the females are only about seven inches long. So they're a lot smaller than they're often depicted in media um, because they would be much more terrifying if they were enormous. But luckily, just seven inches. Males are orders of magnitude smaller. They're only about half an inch to a little over an inch long. (gasps) That's so tiny. So (laughs) tiny. And they don't have that luring apparatus. They're basically just a parasite and their function is to find females. Sounds accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anglerfish take it to the extreme. They do have eyes and sensory organs to help them find females. But once they find a female anglerfish, they will bite down under her body. Rude. I know, right? That is not the way to catch a lady's attention. Sometimes. I mean, I'm not going to speak for everybody. But for anglerfish, a lot of species, the male will bite onto the female. And for some of them, that's it. They will deposit their sperm into her bloodstream. And that's it. They can detach and release and go off to find another female. But in many species, the males actually fuse into the female's body. They lose their eyes and all of their internal organs. <laughs> they basically just become testes, just little sperm sacs attached to the female. Wow. I think I've seen images. Isn't it possible for like multiple to fuse to one female? It's not just one. Yeah, I think scientists have seen up to six males latched onto a female. So six little sperm sacs. Wow. You know, I will say though, it's refreshing to know that there are some instances where the females have the cool flashy item instead of the males because I feel like, you know, birds, it's always the males that are so beautiful and not always, but most of the time the females are like brown and drab. (laughs) Uh, And so that's cool that the ladies get something flashy this time. Literally flashy. Yeah. Anglerfish take the whole losing yourself in your relationship to the extreme. (laughs) Wow. That is true. Anglerfish can be pretty weird. There's actually a rare species of anglerfish called the Pacific football fish. (gasps) And in addition to bioluminescence, they also have biofluorescence where they create flashes of color. And that's pretty rare, even in the abyssal zone. But they'll create almost like a disco ball effect to lure in and stun prey. It's just like, you know, it's a dazzling effect. Wow. So luminescence would be steady light. Mm -hmm. And then fluorescence is flashing. Biofluorescence changes the light. It changes the light. So perhaps it might even change the intensity too. Right. Mm -hmm. enhance that disco effect. Wow. That's cool. So it could happen. We 
don't know very much about fish down there and we are discovering new things every day, even about fish that we think we know. Mm-hmm. That is for sure. So there's a really a wide variety of way these different fish are eating things. We've got the disco ball anglers who are bringing in their prey that way. And then we've got the cookie carter sharks who are taking those circular bites. We've got the black swallowers with their terrible decisions and what size of food they're eating. But it sounds like they would bite down in just about anything that fell down there. That is true. It really makes me think about how we need to be careful of what we're putting in the ocean, especially things like plastics. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things we didn't get to with these animals, but a lot of their non-fishy compatriots in this zone will eat is called marine snow. It is not as fun and friendly as Frosty the Snowman. If Frosty the Snowman was made out of this, it'd have to be made by a necromancer because (laughs) it is made up of a lot of different decaying matter or really anything small that's floating down towards that zone. But that could also include, I suppose, litter like plastics and stuff that have broken down to that size and could even be swallowed. Absolutely. Especially microplastics too. You hear a lot about trash islands, but sometimes that trash does sink. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the appetite that a lot of these animals have, they will try and eat pretty much anything they can when they come across it. And if unfortunately that happens to be a piece of plastic, then, you know, that could be the doom of that fish. So definitely making sure we can do what we can to minimize uh, plastic products and where it goes, where it ends up after we use it things of that nature. That reminds me a little bit of Doctor Who when in all the Christmas specials, the snow was never snow. It was always like the ashes of dead people. Ah, yes. Yeah, it's like marine snow. Yeah. But you can eat it. It's dead things, poop, uh, more dead things. All that good stuff. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you have that, but then also all of that falls to the bottom, right? Eventually it will stop. So actually a lot of the composition of sand, once you get further into the ocean, like closer to the abyssal zone is actually bits of like forams and different organisms. It's like they're carcasses, like a massive grave. Delightful. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for Zoo After Dark. Yeah, please, if you would, help us out by leaving us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen and by telling your friends all about the show. If you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to ask us an animal question, reach out to us at Zoo After Dark on Twitter. What are we talking about next episode? (gasps) Ooh, yeah. Next time we are going to let Alec take the wheel and have him talk about some super cool, really big dead things now. Because it's spring next month. So what else will we talk about but dead things? Yeah, right. Get enough of that super cool, bright colored, happy, joyous new life stuff. But what about the old life stuff? And how the old life used to make new life. (laughs) 